0: This is Chet with Christian Hunters of America Podcast. We have another special guest. We have Brian Sillison. For any of you that watch the Sportsman's channel, you know his TV show Beyond Rubicon. They do a lot of extreme uh, backpack and camping hunting and uh, base camp and they go all over western United States. Brian and his family are based out of New Mexico. He is a former Marine and he is a proud patriot of America, as we are. We have my co-host, Mike, in studio. How are you,
1: Mikey? We are doing great. Uh, Thanks for joining us today, Brian, and hello, everybody.
2: Hello, everybody. This is Brian Solson. I'm just happy to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Love it.
0: Brian is a new friend of ours. I've been watching Beyond Rubicon for several years now. I love the the family dynamics, having your brother and your dad on there and some of your close friends and, and all the trials and tribulations that we all experience while hunting Western Big Game. Brian, if you want to introduce yourself briefly for the, the few people out there that haven't heard of you, or and, and if you want to please uh, talk about your show.
2: Certainly. Um so my name is Brian. So listen, I'm a, a, lifelong hunter, even though I took a several decades break from hunting while I was in the Marine Corps and only got to hunt a few times. Um, but, uh, I started beyond be on Rubicon really was kind of born in the Florida mountains on an Ibex hunt. And when I decided to retire from the Marines, I thought it wouldn't it be fun to, to kind of take it to another level and be able to share our stories, um, to the films. And all of a sudden, Beyond Rubicon was born more from attitude than from hunting. To, to be honest, I don't think we ever proclaimed that we were the best hunters or the the coolest hunters or the luckiest hunters. We were just we just hunted and we liked to tell stories. So uh, that's how Beyond Rubicon kind of came alive. Is that we we would film, you know, on the on the side just for fun, just to capture those few moments I had while I was in the Marine Corps and then shared them with family and friends, and pretty soon people started to really love what we were doing. I said, you know, it would be great if we just hired a movie crew and went out to the field and captured the essence of an elk hunt and see if we could make something out of it. And uh, and when I say movie crew, I mean legitimately a movie crew. I uh, came down from Albuquerque, and we completely broke the budget and broke the bank and had a direct... <laughs> had a director with a, a beret and a red scarf and we had uh, a guy with a sound bar and running around with you know a microphone hanging over our heads and multiple cameramen and we were kind of like a bag of monkeys rolling through the forest trying to see if we could make a hunt happen and that's kind of how our style was created is we just decided to make hunting incredibly difficult by bringing people who didn't know how to hunt into the field, capture it with a camera. And as most people know, just having an extra buddy with you in the field can make it more difficult because you got twice the signature and twice the smell and twice the movement. And it's uh, it, can, it can make it a challenge for a sport that's already pretty difficult, in my opinion.
0: Twice the loud footsteps and... Uh... Everything else that goes along with it. Yeah. Trying to be as quiet as possible. How did you segue into doing it from family, doing it for friends, capturing it for you guys to be able to reflect back on? And then how did that come across in order to get into um, the hunting industry and having it, having your show, um, your TV show showcased on such a, a popular outdoor
2: channel? Well, you know, I think, uh, I'd like to say I jumped in with both feet, but I really just kind of dove in, uh, my brother and I both wanted to share stuff and want to share stories. And we talked about blogging and vlogging and YouTube and whatnot. And so when I opted to retire from the Marines, I put together a business plan that said, you know, I didn't know anybody who hunted and did video. And so I said, well, how can we get the absolute best product? And that was to to hire a production company. And so I didn't, there was no real transition. It was, I just went all in. And I thought for a moment that we could make a documentary style hunting series and try to get on the discover channel or some of these other major networks or, or really, I'm kind of jumping ahead of myself a little bit. I thought initially we'd just go YouTube. It would be all YouTube. And But once we got the movie crew and we captured such beautiful aspects of the national forest and of the hunt, even though we were only marginally successful, uh, you know, it was recommended that I try to get on a more national platform and one door would open to another door to another person and pretty soon I... I landed at the Sportsman Channel, and they loved what we were doing. They liked the quality of, of the, the the video and the film that we were producing. They said, hey, we'd like you to go ahead and, and pull you in. And I uh, put you on the Sportsman Channel. I said, great, now what? They said, we'll go get some sponsors. And I'm sitting in Las Vegas, Nevada at this point at the SHOT Show. And I said, great, I'll go get some sponsors. So I show up at a at a booth, and I say, hey, my name's Brian. And we just got accepted. On the Sportsman Channel to to produce a, a season with them, would you like to sponsor us? And they looked at me and said, "Hey, you, you have a media kit." And I'm like, "What's a, what's a media kit? You know, what <laughs> what do you mean, a media? Kit? I love it. <laughs> what do you mean, media kit? I'm on I'm on TV. We're going to be on TV. Don't you want to support us?" And it it was my first big lesson in that there's a lot of people who, video their hunts for good reason. And they're all great. I love amateur stuff and I love professional stuff all the same. But uh, it was a, a rude awakening for me to realize that pretty quickly that, uh, nope, this is also a business endeavor. And you need to provide something more than just pretty footage for people to want to get behind you. And so I took, took my knocks early and often. And finally got enough momentum that we could produce a second season and a third season, and we're, we're filming season six right now, which is unbelievable to me uh, that we're able to keep it alive for this long. Um, yeah, because season five
0: it. is out on for us to watch as the episodes, and you guys are recording for next year's for season six, right?
2: Yep, that's that's correct. So season five is airing right now, and, and we're about to wrap that up. We have, uh, I think, three more episodes. Um, originals coming out and for the fourth quarter here. And then we'll, we'll end with a bang. We, we have a great episode to be the season five ender. And, and so then we're, we're going to start cutting together season six, which is, again, I'm just kind of baffled that we we're, we made it that far. I yeah, can remember being told it really is. It really is a blessing. Um, You know, people, assume that if you're on TV, you know, you're rolling in money and you get all this free stuff and free hunting. So like, you know, there's just, there's nothing free in the world. Like it takes hard work. It takes grit and determination, just like any other endeavor and that nothing's handed to you. <clears throat> and so, you know, I'm continuing to work hard and I continue to feel blessed each day, whether whether or not uh, things are going exactly how I, I want it or not. it it really doesn't matter. Um, what matters is that, you know, we enjoy all the stuff that we forget makes you successful, like waking up every day, having two, two sons who love me dearly, having built a house, having the opportunity to even go to the mountains and participate in nature like we do. You know, those are the things that, that are, you know, define success for me these, these
1: days. Yep, absolutely. And I think that's where a lot of us in our culture has changed and, you know, like kind of how, what's going on in our world and our country is, you know, there's there's this new idea of entitlement, you know, per se. But if you look at most of the people, they're hardworking, they have dreams, they have values, they have visions. And really what you did is you took an opportunity through dedication, hard work, and, and, probably failing I bet if you added up all your failures compared to the success where you're at is probably 10 to one of how many times you had to crawl back up and stand back up in order to just get that one win and I think that's part of what the American dream is you know is, is we're given that opportunity to to have this opportunity whatever that opportunity may be and if you're passionate and you're dedicated to it and you're willing to sacrifice and know that you know things are going to be tough but there's going to be that reward at the end and i think when i look at the business which you've created and the opportunities i mean to me that's just that's what i see is a normal american a normal guy that has served his country faithfully that gave his life for our freedoms has worked hard dedicated provided for his family and now is living his dream through you know all of these things that basically led to this point where we're discussing today so
2: i think you nailed it and i think yeah. More than anything, yet, you know the American dream is really based on you know what what do they say? you know where luck and opportunity meet is where you'll find success. <laughs> you know it's, there's but creating opportunity and and being able to dig your heels in and 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 take your knocks and take your lumps and and move on, I think is it's important to identify, but it's it's not you know the our country isn't lost on that. We have, like you, you said, like have so many different people are willing to do that, are willing to make sacrifice, are willing to really be determined to to make something of themselves, whatever it looks like for them, you know, whatever success is. For some people, it's all money. For some people, it's all, um, you know, all toys or or a big house or or whatnot. And and for me, it's you know, I, I'm I'm happy to have. You know, I make a modest living, uh, and I'm I'm happy to wake up in my own home. I lived in a camper for over a year, uh, while while I built this house, and and uh, you know, and I I I just wake up and go, you know, I'm, I'm i could be the wealthiest person on the planet right now, because my view of wealth is you know really based on joy, and and happiness, and a little bit of love, and, and it all comes together because you're grateful each day, right?
1: Absolutely, for um, sure.
2: And so that's why, you know, in the in the woods, the first few hunts we did, we we didn't we didn't get anything on film. We hardly got wildlife on film, much less you know, the highly sought after kill shot or, you know, the the harvest. We we struggled and and it that helped just open my eyes to what's really important when you go out hunting. And I think we're probably one of the shows that has the most episodes without a harvest or without a kill or without, you know, a kill shot of just about any of them that are out there right now um, because we try more than anything to just focus on more important stuff like the journey itself. Yep. And I and, think
1: people relate to that because I think about how many hunters that are not hunting on a, a private farm or a a ranch or you're you're paying an outfit or a whole bunch of money to have, you know, everything catered to you. I think most hunters that watch shows are just average people that may hunt three to five weekends out of the year. They they love it; it's their, it's their getaway time of family and fellowship, and they get out there. and I think that's where it resonates with as with common people. You know, it's I would say if you look at the success rates, you know, across you know Arizona, New Mexico, or Utah or Colorado, whatever it is, I bet you the success rates are probably average twenty five percent for the average you know across the board and the reality is is not most 75% of the people are not pulling the trigger or having that harvest it's it's all of the other things that go into what makes why we hunt and why we enjoy the outdoors and things like that and to me i think that's why your show is so successful because it relates to what what we all strive for you know we get out we get out of the, the big city per se out of our jobs you know getting away from the internet social media and we just go out in god's creation and and be with some of our best friends and family and things like that and we we enjoy all of those attributes and then the hunt is just the the topping on the cake. It's just an excuse to get us all together. And, and then if we're successful, you know, that's, that's almost like a bonus in a lot of ways. So.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Again, I just have to agree with you adamantly, (laughs) vehemently agree with you that that is, that's the most important aspect of it all. And, and we do forget because I felt the pressure myself when we didn't get it done. Um, I mean, I even, you know, I can remember, you know, in the first couple seasons, you know, pulling my brother aside and just being like, you you passed this bull? You know, we don't even have a kill shot of video yet. You passed this beautiful bull. He's like, well, it didn't speak to me. You know, he says, it's, it didn't choose me. Like, it, it was there, and I may have been able to take the shot, but it wasn't, it's not what I wanted out of the hunt. And... And, that, and I was kind of at odds with them for a little bit. And, and I started to feel tense. And I'm like, we just got to get it done. We just got to get it done. And, and I was so wrong. And I'm just glad I had the experience because of feeling that kind of pressure that I really needed to to, to get the shot. And, the, and the, yeah, I'm just glad that I had that experience now because I look back on it and I'm like, I was silly. I almost ruined what it was that got us out to the field because I was worried whether or not we killed something. And I was just just ludicrous to me and so now when we go out if we get something we get something if we don't we don't either way it's it's the hunt that is that is hunting that is not our sport is not called killing our support our sport is not called the harvest i don't even know if it's a sport more than than, uh it really is a lifestyle right so yep exactly
0: to us it's a lifestyle it's our it's Mm -hmm. mike and i spend a lot of time outdoors uh when we can away from our normal jobs and we're all volunteers at uh, Christian Hunters of America. We're, you know, the nonprofit and all volunteer-based organization that we've, we've been blessed uh, by being able to uh, um, be able to have this podcast that we launched earlier this year and having success over that and having lots of our friends and families and members listen to this. Um, we say thanks all the time, but we can't give enough thanks in order to get our message out, in order to share information, in order to share our passion and, uh, and be, you know, the light in other people's lives and bring God into their lives, bring our passion and and teach them some of the outdoor skills necessary to, uh, to be successful. But, you know, we're very blessed to have that mentorship and that fellowship and in order to, to reach to people that are young and old we take we have mentored hunts throughout the year that uh, we're able to to take kids out whether it's mule deer or, or during rifle season or we've talked about it in the uh, in previous episodes and a lot of people that follow us know that we have the the mentored javelina camp every year and we've taken wounded vets out um, from other nonprofits that get tags given to them through wounded warrior project or outdoor experience for all and it's just you know sharing god's creation with them and you know we don't get out there and start preaching but we show them the light and uh it's up to them to to take those next steps whether it be in the in a godly path or whether it be in the hunting path and and just at least expose them to uh to that world and and show them some skills and, and and make them believers that uh those outside you know, is good for your soul. Is good for your mind, and it, it bring it just recenters you.
2: Well, I like how you you use the word recenter, and that's I feel like my center uh, and my balance comes to life when I'm out in the mountains. You know, when there's no distractions, we don't have technology around, we don't have all the 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 craziness that's going on in the in the world, just bouncing in our heads because we we tend to forget that. Um, we spend most of our time obsessing about the past and the future, but we, we forget to be present. And there's only one other place in the world where I've been 100% present, and that's in combat. And the other place is hunting. Because you're, you're participating in nature at that point in time, and it's hard not to be touched by God when you're there. Uh, if anybody were to ask me, like, where do I feel closest to him, it would be there because I'm the most present there than any other place i've been except for you know except for combat and you just kind of have to be you have to slow down you have to let the world speed up around you you can't be trying to speed up around the world because you'll you'll make inevitably you know many mistakes and you won't have a chance to get close to that buck or that that elk or you know the energy that you possess will not uh will not be positive out in the woods and the woods can fill it the God's country can feel when you bring negative energy out there to it. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, being present is to me, one of the things that we're missing in our society right now, all together. And if you go out into the mountains and you're, you're, you're hunting or whatever it is that you're doing there, you know, it's, it's almost hard not to cross paths with God. Absolutely. You know? And so I think that's you know, where I feel closest to him. My son, Feels uh, the same way and it wasn't something I forced on him you know I, I opened the door of opportunity and he just filled it and I had watched uh, an episode where off the cuff he just belted out this prayer after he got a cow elk all on his own on his own initiative we just happened to capture it on film and I just, it, it makes my eyes well up every single time because he didn't, wasn't just speaking to God. He was speaking to me and telling me things that I didn't know, um, how he felt or telling me how he felt without telling me, if that makes sense.
1: Exactly. And, yeah, yeah. you know,
2: I, I really thought, you know, for a while I was losing my son to video games and to technology and the, the rest of the world. And, and not being able to to really reach him and be a positive influence in his life, and and taking him out into the mountains changed it. Like yeah. and him to him to be my little road dog changed that whole perspective and changed how I view him and how. And then I got to know how he actually views me because it was so wild. And I was like, this 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 kiddo might really not look up to me or respect me at all. And that came to life out over over his, uh, his cow elk in the mountains, in the snow. It all just came out and it's made such a difference in our relationship since then.
1: No, absolutely. And I think that's somewhere because, you know, I'm a father too, and, and I've probably had some of those same feelings, you know, over time and I think sometimes we want our our kids to be exactly like 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 ourselves you know and like all the same things and be be basically a, a mere a shadow of us with but the reality and that's where I was gut checked was the reality is is they had to grow and to learn and adapt and make decisions and figure out you know what do they want to be when they grow up you know and what's important to them and I think I think sometimes when I look back when they're younger I think it was just the immaturity and, and now we're starting to watch the you know, the, the trees start to grow and it's blossom and the maturity mm. side and, and they're realizing the values, the important things and the things that, that truly mean a lot. Where I think sometimes when they're young and they're in school and they're in high school, the, the peer pressures and all of the things that we all went through. And I think sometimes we forget the struggles that we had when we were that young, you know, and now that they're they're grown up, it, it does. It, it completely changes our whole outlook, you know,
2: for sure. I know this is a podcast, but I was literally raising my hand like, yep, I was that kid too. <laughs> I know, me oh,
1: too. <laughs> we all were. We I all were. Know, I know, and I think that's where I'm guilty, you know. It's, I think we, we put the blinders on of who we were as kids, and we have these unrealistic expectations for our kids sometimes. And and then you're exactly right. That's where, in, for us, you know, hunting, you know, and the outdoors brings those relationships. You know, it's like my son had a... A rifle, Coosier hunt down south. He's 24 now, and you know, and that's he loves going on three, four hunts a year, and you know, and that's that's perfect for him. And, and it's just him and I, you know, and it's it's almost comical, you know, that we can laugh and talk and and talk about things that we can never talk about the rest of the year. It's it's, it's amazing how right. those opportunities just they they blossom, they cherish, and and it's I don't know, I, I can't explain it. It's just it becomes a natural you know, conversation of just fellowship between a a father and a son or even with with my daughter, father and daughter, that only in those circumstances that allows, you know, the freedom of just talk whatever you want to talk about and listening and things like that. And I think that's where you get rid of all those other distractions that allow that intimate, you know, you know, discussions and and love and fellowship and everything else that goes into it, you know, that the outdoors brings to us.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: You're talking about a little bit earlier on on the success and whether you capture a successful harvest, this this season of your show is a perfect example of of not being able to you know get an elk on the first couple episodes with family. But I think a lot of people relate to that. Um, elk hunting archery is is extremely hard, even during the rut. We all have experienced that. But being able to see that, being still positive and still thankful on those opportunities to be able to go out there to spend that time, uh, tomorrow's not promised. And given, given that time with your father, with your brother, whether it be the pronghorn hunts or the elk hunts this season and, and all the other ones that you share with, with your son and every other family member and friend, um, there's still something to be thankful for. Even if you aren't filling the freezer, you can still learn, from those errors you can still learn from making a mistake in the woods and and that carries forward as a learning lesson for for your kids and it's a learning lesson for us because a lot of the stuff that that we do learn and some of the errors or whatnot that take place out there can can make you a better person in in your daily life um like we said, it recenters you, it brings you, uh, closer to your spiritual, uh, spiritual self. And it makes you a better person to me. Um, if you sit out there and you're, you're praying or you're sitting out there and you're just thanking the Lord for his beautiful creation. And Mike and I joke all the time that, uh, there's nothing like coming home from a hunt and and getting to sleep in your bed, but there's something about taking a nap on the side of a mountain. when you've gotten up early and hiked to the, to the top or, you know, long day number four or five of the hunt or whatnot, and you're using a, a boulder for a pillow, but it's the best nap you've ever had. There's, there's gotta be something to that on just coming out there and, and, uh, you know, using your pack or whatever you got nothing other than what the clothes on and your rifle or your bow. And it's the most, uh, serene and peaceful moment prior to, um, a a harvest or prior to coming back down that mountain. But some of those times are cherished, even, even, uh, even if they're not successful hunts, like you said, it's just being out there and experiencing, um, everything that nature allows us to, to witness.
2: Well, and I'm in a unique position too. That um, we capture a lot. We don't capture everything, but we are able to capture it on on, on camera. And I learned stuff. You know, from my brother telling me the story of him having this really close elk encounter. It was really, really neat. I was like, oh, this is great. Not until I saw it did I realize how profound that experience was for him. And it was this elk came in and came right to him. And Jeff was in the perfect spot. He'd worked very hard to get there. Barely beat the elk in the position. The elk comes in. My brother pulls back, but the elk beat him through the tree and took off running. And instead of my brother, me, I might have thrown my hand on the ground. I might have been sad. I might have been like, oh, I can't believe I messed that up. Jeff looked at the camera and was just like, that was one of the coolest experiences. Can you believe that? And I got a guy who wrote me a letter. And when you get, you know, a, another man to write you a positive note, it, it means a lot because I would think that potentially a lot of hunters are probably alpha males. They like to provide. They, they definitely put themselves in a position to kill something and harvest something and bring it home. So to get them to actually be complimentary in an email, I think is, or, or some sort of letter, I think, it, you know, says a lot. And this gentleman had had five or six close encounters over five or six years bow hunting and was so frustrated he was going to hang it up. So I've, I've done. I've, I've done bow hunting. I was never going to do it again. I had not gotten an elk yet. He goes, when I saw that clip, and then he goes, the next hunt, your dad, all he can say is how excited and happy he was. And he didn't get anything either. And he goes, it changed me. He goes, I'm still going to bow hunt. I'm just going to remember that when I have that close experience with a with an elk or or with wildlife or whether whatever it happens to be, I'm going to appreciate it and not get frustrated with myself. And I'm certainly not going to quit. And I thought that was a really neat neat message that I received, and I shared that with everybody that I could. Um, and you don't you don't know if you're making a positive impact on the world, but when somebody just gives you a little bit of a taste that says, "Hey, you, you, you changed my perspective." You know, I was like, you know, I learned something too from my brother on that very same hunt. You know, I wasn't there when, when he messed up that bull. And it was just a matter of circumstance. He did everything he could. Um, it just didn't work out. And for him to not be frustrated about it and to be upbeat and optimistic, I thought was tremendous. And it was just another reminder to myself that, you know, we don't, uh, it doesn't always work out the way we want it to, but it works out for whatever reason that God intends it to work out, and so
0: He's ultimately uh, can, in, in charge, picture.
2: right? And, yep,
0: yep. Uh, and your your dad and your brother I think a lot of people relate to the just the whole family dynamics. But when they're laughing, those those smiles of your family members are infectious. And and Jeff, wouldn't I mean I don't know him personally, but People relate to that and you're like, you put yourself in those, in his shoes because people have witnessed that. People have felt that, uh, that defeat, but it does take a mature hunter or someone that has had ups and downs in order to sit back after that. You, we know what it takes to, to go with all your gear on your back and huffing and puffing and, and want to have that successful harvest and then to not be able to because the animals have a sixth sense because it it just wasn't meant to be because some other animal snapped a twig and, and the bull looked that way, or he he smelled a cow or whatever it could be. But Mm -hmm. it does take a mature hunter to be able to sit back and say, you know what? Yes, I didn't get that bull, but wow. And, And just like he did, this is, this is unbelievable. I'm so thankful to be able to witness this. This just happened. You happened to capture it on film. Uh, but the seeing that from my perspective um, made me just, you know, become even a bigger fan than I already am just because people can relate to that.
2: Well I'm I'm glad you said that because I'm not always the mature guy at the end of a film stock. <laughs> <talk. laughs> I'm not always the positive upbeat guy but uh but you know it gives me something to aspire to, right?
0: Yes. I I mean I was out of town as just a quick story a, a buddy um quite a few years older than me but he's never he's never hunted, you know, he he shoots for sport and uh for fun so it's not like he's opposed to firearms at all but he's just he's not a hunter he's not a fisherman he's gone outdoors he was a, he's an eagle scout when in his younger years but just never took to it didn't have family that that took him out or whatnot and we happened to be in an area in prime rut uh just a little over a month ago and i go you know what they may be there they may not be there but if they are it's going to be incredible and in arizona eastern northeastern arizona A lot of people know 3C, and it's real close to the Indian Reservation. So some of those bulls come off of San Carlos and the White Mountain Reservation, and they don't have the pressure that the rest do. So if you come into 3C area or Unit 27, those are some monster bulls. And if you can see or hear them bugling or fighting, it's incredible, and it could be, you know, hunting 50 years and it's still just as cool as the first time you saw it. And then me taking him out there and we lucked out and, you know, as it's getting that gray light, they're just, you know, sounding off like nobody's business and coming in 360 degrees that every elk dream or elk hunters dream of being able to witness that. And hearing them lock, lock antlers and hearing the cows mew, it's just, unbelievable but then getting to see it through someone else's expressions that is not a hunter and just understands now that you know a lot of people look look badly upon hunters and they don't consider us conservationists or stewards of the land but explaining to him that you know we want these animals here forever that's why we are you know choosing the the older age class or uh, the ones that have been kicked out or or whatnot We want the big animals, but that's also um, a part of just being good stewards of the land and good conservationists and then seeing him witness that and learn that um, it was just kind of interesting seeing it from uh, his perspective and his reflection on it afterwards.
2: And isn't it nice to introduce somebody to an experience like that? it is like, it, It's just such a privilege to do so and with your mentorship programs and whatnot it you you do that on a on a bigger scale but you know for me if there's a a new hunter what some people term in the industry is a late onset hunter uh to be able to show them or or your kids like to just just show them what it's like uh is it's just a privilege it really is it is i'm introducing Introducing your part of nature that very few people will get to witness, and very even fewer will learn to appreciate, and to the extent that we do, because they're not there. They, they might have an opinion that they just don't know. I, uh, there's a book which is it's going to be interesting because it's, it's, uh, it's called The Quiet Place of Violence. Um, and, he kind of stays away from the spirituality part of hunting, which is the only part where I kind of go against him, but his observations about what happens on the hunt are, are pretty in, impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, he he talks about how we are really participants in nature at this point as hunters. We're not just observing and, we really are. We're, we're that of predator and prey at this point in time. And, you know, I, I call, I I call it a primal instinct and people close to me, are like primal instinct. I just hate that word. And I'm like, well, it, it goes back millennia. like, I mean, just even 200 years ago. I mean, if you couldn't hunt, you didn't eat and you certainly didn't eat meat. There wasn't a big agricultural push and beef available on the shelves and you know, that's what led to, you know, the wildlife crises in this country is that we had, you know, the market hunters that went out and and did this and, and harvested a bunch of game to bring back to the East Coast to feed the masses. But it wasn't that long ago where you had to be able to hunt. And I, I don't like to, to admit that it's a dying heritage, but our society's kind of going in that direction where we've got fewer and fewer people realizing the importance of what it is a hunter does and that sure we could we could not eat game meat we could go to the store and get beef and buy processed lunch meat and all sorts of stuff all all day every day and i eat plenty of everything but the fact of the matter is that this this skill and this way of life is more important now i think than ever before Um, because we understand what it's like to be in nature and to be part of the whole process.
0: 100%. And
2: and, and so many people don't, yeah, so many people just don't, they don't get it, they don't understand. How could you possibly kill something, especially if you say you love it? How could you kill an elk when you say you love elk? Well, because that's part of God's creation. It's part of how nature was intended to be, like, and they're like, Well, it's brutal. I said, Brutal? I said, What's what's more brutal than a whole bunch of beef being fattened up and taken to slaughterhouse? <laughs> like <there's, laughs> these animals are free. Right. They're a renewable resource. And again, I eat plenty of beef, trust me. Uh I I like a ribeye. But
0: Amen to you know, that.
2: They, they, They miss this. They miss the point that these animals are free, and they're organic, and they're renewable resource. And we harvest them as ethically as we possibly can. And I would say that if you really looked at the process, it is far more ethical than what we're doing elsewhere. And I'm not. I am not pointing fingers at ranchers. I am not pointing fingers at butchers in the slaughterhouses whatsoever. I'm just saying that, you know, when people try to make that argument that's, that that the the hunt and the kill is not an ethical aspect of our life, we're not looking at the whole picture here.
0: I I gotta follow up on that with hundred percent agree. And if anyone has witnessed nature, they they uh they will see that nature in and of itself of a of a predator attacking a prey animal is far more brutal than what a hunter wants to do do we make bad shots do we have bad shot placement sometimes yes um no hunter wants to make a poor shot and have an animal suffer but if you've been hunting long enough whether rifle or bow it does happen we'd be lying to to think that it doesn't but if you want to go see a mountain lion um attack a buck or you want to see a bear, uh, attack any animal. Um, we've, we've had prior discussions uh, that we couldn't believe we've had a prior guest talk about, uh, you know, witnessing those things. And, and sometimes you see it on film, sometimes you don't, but when you hear or when you see a video of, you know, a bison calf getting, um, attacked by a grizzly outside of Yellowstone where everybody's coming there to see the animals and, you know, there's probably 95% of them that are not hunters or even higher percent. And they're getting to see that that's, that's nature and that animals getting eaten alive and is suffering a whole lot more than, than, uh, a a shot to the, to the vitals. Uh, Right. I mean, I know we're simplifying it, but, and people are still going to disagree with, with our views on hunting. But like you said, in another point, if this last crazy uh year and a half of this pandemic hasn't proved anything it's a little bit i think people need to be a little bit more self-reliant when there's everybody running out to costco or walmart or your local grocery store and and buying everything and you know the old adage oh that's going to be there why do you need to hunt i can just go to the grocery store well not all the time and if it gets any worse you're going to see that um yep you don't have to be a hunter. You don't have to like game meat, but just being a little bit more sustainable and having um, a little bit better connection of where your stuff comes from instead of just going to the grocery store and throwing it in a basket. Um, I think you have a, we as hunters or hunter gatherers have a, a deeper connection to the the meals that we prepare for our family and our not more thankful, but we're more appreciative on all the work that you put in for that animal on a little coos deer, as you know, in New Mexico, we're, we're blessed with the two States and old Mexico that have them. And you're not getting a lot of meat off of those. It's 110 pounds for a big mature buck, but, um, you're very thankful when you're eating one of those backstrap steaks because they are delicious. It doesn't get more organic. And, um, and just being out there like we've talked about previously of, of being out right. there and experiencing that, uh, you know, where that animal was harvested. you know what he's been eating. It, it doesn't get any healthier than that. So yeah, we have a lot to be thankful for. And I think a lot of people should, uh, they don't need to get back in the roots and we don't need everybody farming. We don't need everybody going back into 17 and 1800s, but it is good in our view or my opinion, at least to, to have a little bit better um, self-reliance and not be so dependent on everybody else because, like we said, tomorrow's not guaranteed and, and you can't rely on everybody to for a handout. you got to work for what you get.
2: It's, it's so true, so true. And I, I laugh because I was muzzleloader hunting with my dad. I was just, I was helping, I didn't have a tag. I was helping him out and we're moving down this ridge line and I hear people talking. So I kind of gravitate over there to see what was going on. I mean, just having a good old conversation. We're in the sticks. And I finally run into these these folks, and there's three three of them, I believe. And one was wearing one of those Rastafarian hats, you know, like a cloth hat with rainbow colors. He had dreadlocks. Right. And then he had had a muzzle over strapped over his back. And this is before, like, the eat organic, like, trend, right? This was going back at least 10 years now, if not further. And, you know, I asked him, I said, what what are you doing out here? He said, he's got Birkenstock sandals on with wool socks. He did have wool socks on. And he says, I just want to, I just want to harvest my own meat. It was the most organic, best meat ever in the whole planet. I just want to do it. I said, well, I can respect that. That's great. That's what we like to do. I said, but let me give you some advice. maybe don't talk uh, when you're walking down the ridgeline in prime elk country. Right, um, You know, maybe <laughs> play the wind a little bit. They weren't playing the wind either. Like they were going to ruin the whole valley if they kept going the way they were going. I said, get the wind in your face. You know, you, I really want you to have an opportunity to get one. Do you know what to do with them once you get them? <laughs> the Blake look on his face was just priceless. He didn't know, but, I had to give him some kudos for just being there. I was like, that's that's a guts. Like you don't know much and you're still here. Right? Like, that's, that's pretty, pretty gutsy. But, um, but you know, even in that particular lifestyle, which I, I, you know, I'm, I didn't fully understand I didn't know his politics or anything. I could do, uh, make some assumptions, I'm sure. But, um, but he was there. He's like, and that's exactly why I want to, I want to get the best meat possible. I want to do it myself. And, and be part of this whole experience. And I, I joke about it, but that was kind of on point. Like he just didn't know what he didn't know. And, and you know, I, I chuckled a little bit when I left, but I was like, wow. I said, you know, it's other people actually get it that aren't necessarily from shots from the same cloth as I am. There's a few out there.
0: Right. And um, we as hunters are, you know, and just people in general, We try not to be, um, it's human nature. Um, we're, we're judgmental. Unfortunately, we don't try to be, but we make assumptions and uh, speculate a lot at least like you're saying, um, you reflect back on it. It's comical or, you know, kind of, shocking when you go out there and yeah if you saw somebody in brightly colored clothes and you're not used to seeing someone like that and they're in Birkenstocks or or they're in shorts and it's cold out and they're making the attempt and I kind of look at that like um so many like gym rats or people that are constantly working out or or doing uh CrossFit and whatnot and everybody started somewhere um we take a lot of it a, a lot of it for granted Um, whether it's in your personal life or professional life, everybody started somewhere. And it does take those learning experiences for us to self-reflect and, you know, not pass judgment sometimes. And we're, you know, someone that's overweight and they're starting their New Year's resolution. And if they stick with it and someone hasn't seen them in years, you know, kudos they had to start somewhere somewhere if you started in your 20s and 30s hunting because you didn't have a a father figure that was into that or or you didn't have family that was into it and you had you surrounded yourself with friends someone opened up your eyes and I think the moral of that kind of story is you're never you're never too old to stop learning and you're never too old to start something new that you're passionate about and you know educate yourself there's a ton of things out there that you can read up on or watch tv shows and uh and whatnot but yeah they're they're probably not someone we're gonna go uh hang out with or or sit around the campfire but at least they were out there trying to learn and i'm sure you shared some knowledge here go to go to go to sportsman's or cabela's or your sporting (laughs) goods store and maybe get some boots uh maybe get a, a better jacket and uh here here's how you uh play the wind and, and use some powder in the air or use some dirt. If you want to be <laughs> supernatural and see which way it's blowing. Yeah. Oh, no, that's a good story. That's a good story. Uh, sure. it,
2: was, it was pretty funny. I mean, I've run into all sorts of folks out in the woods and, and, uh, you know, sometimes you run into people and they just want to avoid you. It's almost like they feel like there's the curse if they bump into another hunter. And I, I learned a while back that, If you if you bump into somebody out in the woods, just go ahead and engage. They're the same as you. Like you guys share a common bond. And generally speaking, you guys are going to leave better hunters. You're going to be able to coordinate your efforts in this in the same area, just like I did with that guy. Right. Like, hey, that this canyon's bad, but if you stay along this path and you approach it from here with your Birkenstocks, you can still make it in there. But don't go down this way because you won't be able to make it out with those, those sandals on. But uh... You know, from that guy and several other people, like most, 99% of the time, it's just been such a positive experience. Whether regardless of where they they're from or how they do it, and um, you know, some of the some of the experiences haven't been great, but for the most part, it's uh, always nice just to get somebody else's perspective because they're doing the same thing you're doing, and they're loving it too.
0: Yeah, we've all had those experiences. We've had people, um, the negative ones. We've had uh, interactions with guides, you know, using your tree stand or using your ground blind or, you know, calling you every name in the book and um, you deal with those differently. But we've also had circumstances when you see someone at the trailhead and you're traversing up that mountaintop to get to your glassing spot and kind of get there around at the same time from different angles and you're like, all right, what do we do now? Uh, we know the deer over there, have they seen them? Have they not seen them? And then, you know, go and introduce yourself and, and explain what you're there for or see what kind of expectations they have. And as an example, Mike, Mike and I have done that, um, on a Southern Arizona coos deer hunt and the guy couldn't believe that we were in that spot. He, he was born and raised in a small town in Southern Arizona and knew that area. And it was one of Mike's spots that he shared with me and couldn't believe that we were there and he was taking his grandpa out his grandpa didn't care what he got as long as it was a buck and you know you kind of shook hands out there and became friends and it's all about that uh extending the olive branch and being not only good stewards for wildlife but being good stewards to to mankind and and just being good people you don't have to go out there with an attitude and and think that you're better than them, or it's public land and everywhere that we hunt, and everybody's entitled to it. So, no, that's they really it. are. Can you no, uh, I, I, go ahead?
2: No, no, please.
0: Can you, uh, you, you first opened up about how Beyond Rubicon started and going after ibex in the Florida mountains? That's always um, a lot of people. If you don't know, those are an exotic species and New Mexico has one of the few um, along with Texas, they have a lot of exotic animals like the the Gimsbuck or the Oryx that are in southeast New Mexico. But a lot of people don't know about the Ibex if they haven't been to Europe or to Asia or or seen them in a the picture. Most people, including myself, probably are never gonna be able to to harvest those, but can you can you talk about that on on where they live, how crazy and gnarly those mountain ranges are, and a little backstory on those animals, if you could?
2: Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so these are, these are Persian ibex, right? Um, they were introduced, I think there was 15 of them introduced in 1970. Um, and believe it or not, they were gifted to us from Iran. Of all places, wow! Um, and so we had this. Um, it was an expansive program with the state of New Mexico to create more opportunities for for hunting. And so they took what you know, a lot of the state they thought was you know, barren land that didn't support you know more of our native species, such like as mule deer and big sheep and elk and, and whatnot, and, and pick these areas and introduce these exotics. Um, right now, we have the Persian ibex, we have Barbary sheep or oudads, and we have gimsbuck or oryx that are all managed by the state, free-ranging public animals, uh, property of the people. Um, you'll see these same species in Texas and stuff on the, a lot of the big game ranches, in the high fence ranchers, but uh, to roam free, it's only here in New Mexico based on this. And so they didn't have their first hunt until 1974. And, you know, having grown up in New Mexico, I didn't know what they were. And I said, so I never put in for them. Never. Until 2011. I, we put in for our first, or I, I drew my first uh, Ibex hunt in 2001, first time I put in for it, archery Ibex. So that shows you, even in their own state, how little we really knew about Ibex and where they were. And so the state tries to keep them limited to a, a place called the Florida Mountains outside of Deming, New Mexico. And so you can buy an over-the-counter Ibex tag any time of the year, and hunt them any time of the year off of the Florida Mountains. Uh, because they're trying to keep them contained there, because they are a, a very dominant species. Uh, they will, they can take over the entire environment, but down there in the Florida Mountains, the mule deer seem to be doing just fine, uh, and so there's not a lot of competition between our native species and them, but they live in one of the most treacherous little mountain ranges you'll ever see. Uh, it's not big. It's only like seven miles long, a miles wide, and I think the the Capitol Dome is the highest point on the Florida Mountains, and it's at like 7,400 feet. But the prominence rating in the area, because it's all flat, and you're right just north of the Mexican border, um, the prominence rating is off the charts. And I've heard and seen where you know the average angle on that mountain range is like you know between 30 and 45 degrees. Um, because it's it's just treacherous and gnarly, it's not a place where where mountain climbers or, or rock climbers go, even though there's plenty of rocks. Because it's it's considered dead rock, it flakes off when you grab it, and okay. it's da- and it's so it's pretty dangerous. But these ibex can climb and scurry and jump and thrive on those rocks, and and they some pretty formidable prey, if you ask me, especially if you got a bow. Um, I think, with a rifle, you know most hunts you know it can become a lot easier when you have a rifle, but you still have to traverse that terrain. You still have to get yourself in position. You still have to get up the mountain safely and down the mountain safely. And you know that that can pose a lot of challenges. Um, I met a mountain goat guide out of Alaska who would come down and and offer his services to uh, some of the New Mexico outfitters that would hunt there. And he said that, the florida mountains was tougher than any mountain goat hunt he had done in alaska wow that's saying a lot it's saying a lot now he happened to have i think the number 1 and number 3 ibex with a bow um in the world which you know is mainly the florida mountains but uh you know based on sci ratings he had you know pretty um pretty good amount of success on that mountain himself As a hunter, and then of course, you know, many satisfied clients as a guide, I think. But I guess to put that into perspective, I mean, they're they're like this little tawny brown animal. I'm staring at mine right now. Uh, He's got to be two and a half feet tall at his highest point to his shoulders. And he's got 40, mine's got 40 inch horns that swoop back like over half the length of his body, it seems like. And uh, he has calluses on his on his elbows, on his knees. Um, and when they scurry across these rocks, they don't just stand there on their hooves. They actually kind of cup their hooves down and then use their elbows as well, and all the joints in their body to to move, kind of like Spiderman. It really is. It's uh, one <laughs> of the most like Spiderman with you can horns. Watch. Oh yeah, yeah, and he. <laughs> I can't begin to tell you how many times I'm watching these things. They go towards the edge of a cliff, and I'm like, "Oh, this entire herd of ibex just committed suicide!" Only to, to peek over the edge, and they're just bouncing down. And I mean, we're talking sheer vertical cliffs, and sometimes the overhangs. That's they are they're, they're pretty amazing.
0: Witnessing the the sheep and the and ibex and are they a part of the sheep or are they a part of a goat family?
2: They're, they're they're a goat. Okay, they are a goat. So they're Definitely considered, would the,
0: are they rams or billies? Are they called? Uh, billies. Okay.
2: But just seeing so, those,
0: any of the bighorn sheep desert or the rocky and, and ibex, I mean, it it's impressive to see see those animals. I've witnessed it too, not them, but, you know, witness desert bighorn sheep. And you're like, yeah, they're going to fall. They're going to fall off that cliff and somehow uh, their structure and their anatomy allows them to do what they do. And it's, it's incredible.
2: Yeah. I, I, yeah, it's hard to even explain and describe to people. Um, but the Florida mountains, I mean, that ecosystem there, uh, is pretty delicate. Um, the state's really done a lot to reduce the the herd size there, uh, for whatever reasons they have. So, My understanding is the herd is below 500 now, where it used to be around 700, 750. Um, And they don't want them competing with bighorn sheep.
0: Is it because they spread disease like some other domesticated animals do with the sheep herds, or just because they are eating?
2: Well, you know, I mean, we all know that the sheep are always susceptible to different viruses and and, and whatnot. I think pneumonia is a big killer mm-hmm. of bighorn, but I think, uh, just from a competitive standpoint, uh, the, the Persian Ibex should push, you know, bighorn out of their area and deplete the uh, natural resources and, and food sources and water sources. Um, cause they do, you know, of course they all breed quite a bit, but, you know, when you're that robust of a creature, like I think it could, it could create problems for the native species. So they try really hard to keep them from, from doing that. But, um, I, took my niece. So my first Ibex, I, that I, sh- that I shot, I did not recover. Um, he went over a dome, followed seven other the billies down this cliff face. We got a little bit of footage. This is one of the things that I, that, that led to us wanting to share more stories, uh, with video camera um, was carried away by a mountain
0: lion. Wow. I say this
2: because we found, we didn't find a drag mark, a skid mark, footprints, blood ended at a spot at the base of this cliff. And there was, it had soaked in the ground about six inches, this big puddle of blood. The Ibex did not leave. on its a cord. And when we were leaving, we ran into a big tom. And he wouldn't run away at about a hundred yards. And we could just see his outline and, and our headlamps, you could see his eyes glowing. And, you know, instead of me throwing rocks at him and charging him and saying, give me my Ibex back. I was like, wow, that's pretty crazy that this big Tom is here. Not until we got down to the bottom and ran into one of the ranchers. And he's like, oh, yeah, that that Tom was eating your Ibex, man. You know, that's why he wouldn't run away. Uh, you know, and, and I always thought, I always had some doubt in my mind if that's what really happened or if, or if somehow the Ibex just got away and fell into a crevice and I never found him. Well, fast forward to a couple of years ago, my niece drew a youth rifle tag there. We took her up to our favorite honey hole and there was a herd of, you know, 25 Ibex or so and a couple billies and she shot one and the whole mountain exploded and these Ibex are running everywhere. They look like, like mice scurrying on the, on the cliff faces. And all you hear is just their hooves hitting the rocks, click, 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 click in all directions. And just a thunderous um, explosion, you know, of of Ibex running in in all these different directions. And so I'm trying to video her Billy. I just let the video camera run where I thought he had gone. I couldn't see him through the LCD screen. So I got my binos up. and I'm looking because if they go into the wrong spot, you'll never find them. And he'd pretty much gone straight down, but, you know, he'd gone at least 100 yards, heart shot through the shoulders. So his his shoulders are busted, and he's heart shot. And he still went like 100 yards. (laughs) It was crazy. Um, But on the the screen, I didn't realize it um, until it was too late. You know, I couldn't find anything, and I finally like, well, let me just hit stop on the record button. But when we were watching the footage, out of all that chaos that had occurred on the mountain range and all the noise and all the Ibex scurrying off in different directions, a mountain lion honed in on the one wounded Ibex and charged up the mountain. And the last thing that Ibex did before it died was face off to the mountain lion. And I need to send you, like, I need to pull it up and send it to you. It's unbelievable. And had I known this was occurring right in front of me, I would have hit, stopped recording. I, I would have continued to record to see what would happen, but uh, I didn't know it cause, You know, he's a little dot. Just runs into the screen. There's a little dot. That's an IBEX, and they're several hundred yards away. And I'm looking through binoculars. And I look down. I'm like, ah, I'm still recording. I hit stop. But uh, that was the last thing that happened. Is that that mountain lion came up, found the one wounded one. They squared off for a split second. And the mountain lion disappears. The Ibex turns towards him, and I hit stop. <laughs> and Murphy's yeah, there, Law. That, oh, of course, of course. But it, it just kind of reaffirmed that, oh, yeah, these mountain lions are apex predators. And, of course, a mountain lion got my Ibex that I shot with my bow that first year and took off with it because I still had that doubt in my mind. But until that moment, I didn't realize just how – prevalent the mountain lions were up there and I still had that doubt that that actually happened to me on my first one and uh so it was it was interesting to see how out uh, of all the ruckus that was going on how he could pinpoint how this mountain lion could pinpoint the one that was struggling and ran straight up the mountain to him uh just un- unbelievable
0: that's an incredible story I and mean, uh, when we all have respect for the predators um sometimes they they do that to our prey and it, they uh, go after a lot of the ranchers, livestock and whatnot, but we do still have a lot of respect. I mean, mountain lions are the tip top of the apex predator in North America, and it's, it's incredible. I mean, to witness that, and we videotaped some of our hunts too, and we're starting into that endeavor, but it, it's extremely hard to look at a small two-inch LCD screen versus if you were looking at it on a, on a television or or right. through your binos, but it's always Murphy's law. You you we, we get to see it in the binos, but you don't get to hit record because you hit you hit stop too soon or whatnot. But I can't imagine. I mean, I think some of those ibex are in the areas of like Mongolia in Eastern Asia, different species where the snow leopards. Um, I could be wrong, but if, you, if I if I am, someone will probably comment. But uh, and seeing those you know, snow leopards traverse some of this crazy terrain and what they're willing to do uh, at those high, high altitudes. And, uh, I mean, the cats, you wouldn't think be able to do all that with uh, not having hooves and not built the same way with these significantly more muscular and and whatnot, but it's a lot of respect for them too. Are they the only predator that you're aware of that that are able to, to take them on?
2: You know, there's plenty of coyotes, but they just—we haven't seen any up on top of the mountain. Uh, so I think that, yeah, aside from humans, mountain lion is the only really predator there. Um, I have heard that javelinas are a little carnivores themselves, but I don't think they actively hunt it. i i have seen javelinas up on the mountains as well, uh, but I think they'll—they'd eat a dead one if they found it, but.
0: We just heard that. I'd never even heard that story, and we recently were told that uh, someone that we had on the podcast, uh, Rick Forrest, he had witnessed that and saw a prior coos deer kill and glass the next area or glass the next day with someone else that had a tag and actually saw a herd of javelina eating on the ribs, the spine, and the gut pile of the deer. And wow. He wished he could have recorded a hindsight 2020, but he goes, I, I witnessed it, I saw it, and couldn't believe it.
2: Well, you know, we, we see that with pigs and hogs. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I guess it only makes sense. I heard about it years ago where uh, they said a javelina will, will come in and try to get the Achilles tendon, right? of a horse or a cow and once it's down it's down and you know i had uh up until that point i never thought that was even remotely possible yeah
0: you see them eating choyas and prickly pears and uh, yeah rooting around in the dirt and 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 right you know normal javelina behavior but we've seen videos recently everybody's got a phone nowadays so there's a whole lot more content out there for people to witness. Um, and we've seen videos. I've seen them this year of a a doe, you know, chewing on a, it looks like she's chewing on a cud, but it's like a chipmunk or a ground squirrel in her mouth and, and a cow elk with some sort of rodent. And you would never believe that if there wasn't footage of it. But I think at some point they, they just need more protein. I'm not a biologist. I'm I'm not a, a wildlife, uh, biologist by any means, but there's something rooted in, in some something DNA that I believe that they need some sort of protein or, or they wouldn't be doing that, or they're, they're lacking right. some sort of nutrient in order, in order for the an herbivore to be eating meat of some sort. I don't know, maybe, maybe a wildlife <laughs> yeah. manager or, or a game warden or some biologist can reach out to Brian or myself and educate us on why uh, deer or elk are uh, or mostly herbivores are are seen with some sort of meat in their mouth it's it's interesting
2: that is interesting my um friend of mine does a lot of photography up there at uh, rocky mountain national park and he got a a gosling a, a cow elk went ate a goose a, a baby goose a gosling mm hmm and it looked at first like she was playing with it, but then it turned into, no, no, she, uh, she, she ate it.
0: All they have is molars to grind it up. And it's probably for the faint at heart. I'm sure it's shocking to see, but it, uh, yeah, they have no canines or incisors, but they, they're, I can't, I can't imagine a cow out grinding on a, on a baby goose. <laughs> that would be, <laughs> that would be quite the sight.
2: It was really was but yeah, I'm actually just taking a moment while we talk and just uh, trying to find that video clip. But I I have gotta send it to you. I'm gonna to try to it's like a twenty minute clip, but I'll try to show you um where that that uh actually went down and that the when the mountain lion came into it and came into frame and
0: I can't uh, wait to yeah. see it.
2: Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty 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 cool.
0: We got so many other topics that we want to discuss. We're, we'd love to have you on again. I know we're all pressed for time, unfortunately. Please tune into his TV show, Beyond Rubicon. If you guys want to reach out to him, he has his Beyond Rubicon TV website. And please continue to listen to future episodes of the Christian Hunters of America podcast. Thank you,
1: guys. All right, uh, we do appreciate everybody joining us today. Uh, Lord God in heaven, we just we just love you, Lord, and we are just so grateful and thankful, Lord, that we are given this opportunity, Lord, to have a podcast, Lord, and to build new relationships and friends. And and as we know, it's a this electronic communication is worldwide, and it is mind boggling to me some days that we can just sit down in a studio and have these conversations and project, you know these great insights, these conversations, and these fellowships, and the educational side. So I just ask that you just uh, bless our friends, our listeners, Lord. We just ask that you bless our country, and we just give you all praise and glory for all that you've done in our lives and and what you're doing, and we just ask that you would just, uh, in all things, Lord, just uh, help our country to be renewed, Lord, and we also pray, Lord, for the outbreaks of COVID that we're ongoing seeing, Lord, and that you just give us peace. In Jesus' name, amen.